Well, good morning, church family, and we'll welcome both in person and online. It's this is the day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. If you're worshiping with us for the first time, my name is Randy, and I'm the lead minister here at the church. And uh, so we just welcome you here, here uh, on our campus, and also um, just uh, on the internet. Uh, we we love Jesus, and we love you. And we're, we're just delighted to get to worship together here this morning. We're in a series of messages through the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And we've just been taking uh, just a verse by verse uh, through this prayer. And this morning, our attention will be on Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. If you will meet me there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. I'm going to read... Uh, Matthew 6, 12, Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, and then I will read Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Matthew 6, 12, 14 and 15, and then Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 25. I've titled this message... The most painful verse in the Lord's Prayer. The most painful verse in the Lord's Prayer. You'll see why in a moment. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. On May the 9th, 1961, John Lewis was bloodied and beaten by a mob at a bus terminal in Rock Hill, South Carolina. John Lewis, who was 21 at the time, was one of 13 Freedom Riders. They sat interracially on the bus from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans. They wanted to test a Supreme Court ruling that made segregation in interstate transportation illegal. The main attacker in the mob was a KKK member, Elwin Wilson. When the Rock Hill police finally arrived to the bus terminal where all the chaos had occurred, and they knew that the bus was coming and the mob had gathered, but intentionally delayed. When they finally appeared, Mr. Lewis was asked if he wanted to press charges. And John Lewis said, no, we're not here to cause trouble. We're here for people to love each other. Well, 47 years later, John Lewis, who had gone on to serve in Congress, received a phone call in his office, and it was Elwin Wilson who wanted to apologize in person. And in John Lewis's book titled Across That Bridge, he wrote these words. I welcomed Elwin Wilson in Washington in my office. And as we sat, he looked deep into my eyes. He said that he was the person who had beaten me so badly that day. He said, I am sorry about what I did that day. Will you forgive me? And without a moment of hesitation, John Lewis said, absolutely. I accept your apology. John Lewis wrote, the man who had physically and verbally assaulted me was now seeking my approval. And this was a great testament to the power of love to overcome hatred, to meet a man in love and offer respect despite his obvious hatred gives that man nothing to justify his anger. Love that opens its arms has the power to disarm hate, to preserve integrity, and to enable the truth to do its work. And then Lewis wrote these words, forgiveness plays a powerful role. Forgiveness paves the way for reconciliation and love. We did not seek revenge against our attackers because we saw that we could not harm them without harming ourselves. We saw them as wayward brothers and sisters who had lost their way. We saw them as innocent 
babies. No child is born in hate. All children are born in hope, love, and innocence. It is a troubled world that teaches these vicious values. We saw that our attackers were also victims. Victims of a negative indoctrination that taught the false values of superiority and inferiority, the sanction of violence and brutality, the justification of inhumanity and hate. Well, what fitting words to introduce this portion of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, just take a look at that verse in your Bibles for just a moment. few observations. First, do you notice that this portion of the Lord's Prayer is the centerpiece of the entire prayer? It's, it's right smack dab in the middle, and that's significant. It's intentional. It's as if Jesus is teaching, if you want to be my disciples, and if you want your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you must make forgiveness central to your life. And then here's another observation. Did you notice that after this part of the prayer comes what? It's the section that says, deliver us from, what? Evil. In other words, forgiveness is the weapon of love for the defeat of evil. And there is no other way. There is no other way. And that leads me to a third observation. This is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that has a footnote. Do you see it there? It's, uh, they put it differently than we would put our footnotes today, but it's in, that's verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's no wiggle room there, is there? It's absolute. Forgiveness is core to our faith. And you can hold a Bible up in front of a church building, but if you say, I don't ask God for forgiveness, and I don't bring God into that picture, I just don't, that's not biblical Christianity. It's a photo op. Dr. King once said, why should we love our enemies? Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. Toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. So when Jesus says, love your enemies in Matthew 5, he is setting for us a profound and inescapable admonition. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies or else? Or else society unravels. That's what happens. The chain reaction of evil. Hate begetting, uh, begetting hate. Wars producing more wars must be broken or we shall be plunged into the darkness of unraveling annihilation. Forgiveness is the weapon of love for the defeat of evil. There it is. Forgiveness is the weapon of love for the defeat of evil. Now, what is forgiveness? 
What does it look like? How often do I need to forgive? And is forgiveness the same as reconciliation? And, and how does forgiveness affect the consequences of sin? You know, does forgiveness guarantee that a relationship will continue? A lot of questions about forgiveness, right? Well, I find answers to these questions from Jesus himself in the parable that I shared here, Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. So I just want us to walk through these verses. And here's the big idea. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. This parable began with a real-world question. In verse 21, Peter asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven? Where did he get that number? Uh, probably from Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, where God promises sevenfold revenge if anyone harms Cain. Remember Cain who had murdered his brother and Cain was concerned about his own life and God promised sevenfold revenge if anybody harmed Cain. And so, so Peter says, well, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven. Peter thinks he's being generous. Where's the line, Jesus? When can I write him off? Now, you would think that Jesus before answering Peter's question, would ask about Peter's situation. Well, Peter, let's talk about what happened. You know, how egregious was the offense? How long has it been going on? No, that's not what happens. Jesus tells the story. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So Jesus, get this, situates Peter's question within the realm of his kingdom. Peter lives in Christ's kingdom, and the king is on the throne. And as the parable unfolds, it will be very evident that all of us, we're in one of two categories here. There's either the king or the servants. And guess who we are? So whatever happened to Peter occurred within Jesus' jurisdiction. Never lose sight of that reality. There, there are many servants but one king. And when I refuse to forgive, I act as if I'm the king. The, the words forgive us our debts are spoken after we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So you remember where you live. You remember who you are, and you remember who the king is, and your king is King Jesus. And when you are hurt, you must first see the king. And that's where Jesus situates the parable. That's where Jesus situates hurt and forgiveness, pain and mercy. And so in verses 24 and 25, we read about how... The, the king settles accounts. There's this day of reckoning, and the day of reckoning starts with the household of God. We're servants, and we are indebted servants, and 
We owe the king. How much do we owe the king? What's the number? 10,000 talents. A talent was a weight. In fact, in that day, it was the largest unit of weight. 10,000 talents. How much is that? Well, let me put it in perspective. In the year 4 BC, all of the tax revenues of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee were collected, and the sum total of that amount, less than a thousand talents. In other words, no one could owe that much money. So when Jesus says, did you hear about the guy who owed 10,000 talents? Everybody laughs. Because it'd be impossible to be in that much debt. And then the guy says to the king, please be patient with me and I'll pay it back. And they laugh again. How's he going to pay it back? The guy has a paper route. Most of us think we're pretty nice people, right? We're a little better than the average person because we showed up here. We have our Bibles. Sorry, online people. (laughs) We're full of spiritual pride and self-righteousness. And when when a loved one wrongs us, we think we'd never do that. We, we don't take our own sin seriously because all we see is our neighbor's sin. And so we deal harshly with others, blind to the size of our own debts. Verses 26 and 27 say, The servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, you know, Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. <laughs> this servant owes his king $20 trillion. And he wants an extension? His hope does not lie in the king's cancellation, but in his own perspiration. He doesn't want Jesus to finish his story. He wants to finish it himself. Oh, but when the kindness and mercy of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his, his mercy, the king took pity on his servant. Listen, forgiveness always comes from the mercy of the forgiver, not the merit of the sinner. And, and so the king, with a word, with a word, forgave the debt. And it was gone. Forgiveness. To forgive... To forgive means to send away. That's what the word means, to send away. Uh, Sin is a stain sent away from a cloth. Sin is uh, is a weight sent away from shoulders. Sin is a penalty sent away from a trespasser. Sin is a debt sent away from a debtor. So to forgive is to refuse to hurt the one who hurt you. It's a decision and a promise to release your offender from their sin debt to you. So to forgive is to cease from wishing for revenge. 
To forgive is to resist the desire to see your offender suffer for what your offender did to you. Someone put it this way. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. And forgiveness can only occur when you have fully felt the pain of the offense. When we forgive, we're not saying that it didn't really matter. Of course it mattered. Otherwise, there would be nothing to forgive. When we forgive, it doesn't mean that the event gets deleted from our memory. You've heard the phrase forgive and forget. I, I find that uh, confusing, frankly. It, it means that we no longer let the memory of the incident paralyze us. In Jeremiah 31, 34, when God says, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin, it's not about cognitive recall. It's about God's attitude to us. It means that God feels about us the way he would feel about us had he forgotten. And there is a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. What if the offender has died? What if the offender is in prison? What if the offender doesn't care? What if the offender still denies the offense? What if the offender is just flat unrepentant? Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness only takes one. And forgiveness doesn't mean that the consequences just go away. You can still forgive someone who will have to go to jail. You can forgive someone and still require time to rebuild trust. But you must forgive. You must forgive from the heart, Matthew 18.35. From your heart. And that was the problem of this servant in Jesus' parable. He had a heart problem. Verse 28 says, that when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. What's that? Well, it's not pocket change. Uh, uh, a denarius was a day's wage. So in other words, a hundred days wages was owed. So it's real debt. Jesus isn't denying the real pain. It has teeth. Christ understands the pain associated with the debt of sin. Yet this servant just like disassociates. He failed to see himself in the eyes of his debtor. Whereas the king had forgiven this servant's debt, the servant forgot the king's forgiveness. And he began to act as if he were entitled to his master's mercy. And when our hearts, listen to me, when our hearts refuse to forgive, our hands take over. And we begin to choke the necks of our debtors. Debtors. 
And we start strangling them with anger. Pay me back. Pay me back. We withdraw. We avoid eye contact. We walk around the house in cold silence. Or we're seduced by self-pity. I mean, this second servant sought the very same thing as the first servant. Same words. But the first servant's amnesia led to merciless anger. And here's what you need to understand, church family. Listen to me, please. Mercilessness is never a private affair. A lack of mercy always affects others in your house. Always. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. People are watching. Our children are watching. Your friends and neighbors, family, they're watching. They're watching your life. They're watching your mercy or lack thereof. Our community is watching our community to see how we treat one another and respond to one another in this season right here, in this year of, of, of sickness and racial strife and political tribalism. The world is watching our church family to see if we truly are of the kingdom of heaven. And they'll know by how we treat one another. And verse 31 says that they were greatly distressed. Could that describe any children in our home? In the privacy of their prayers, do they go to King Jesus greatly distressed at what they see, crying themselves to sleep because of what they witnessed in your life and in your vocation and in your marriage, re refusing to forgive someone has a demoralizing impact on those who know and love you. And here's the deal. Whenever we fail to forgive, we always do so on someone else's property. Because this is the king's country, remember? In verses 32 and 33, the master summoned that servant and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? I, don't treat the person who sinned against you any differently than I treated you. You... you should have watched what I did. Don't you know? Let love be genuine. Outdo one another in showing honor. And you can't do that if you're keeping score. If we are not a forgiving people, are we really Christians at all? Forgiven? People forgive. And, and in Matthew chapter 18, 
Jesus isn't addressing the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Romans. He's talking to Peter and his closest friends. And he's speaking to us. Forgiveness is serious business. And he wants us to know that. Forgiveness is not a precondition for salvation. It's an aftercondition. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit's life in and through our lives. A tree is known by its fruit. And in verse 35, Jesus says, my heavenly father, isn't that interesting? He doesn't say our heavenly father. He says my heavenly father, as if he's making a distinction. There's the king and there are the servants and I'm the king and I'm separating the sheep from the goats. And this is a wake-up call to reconsider our faith commitment. Proverbs 19.11 says that it is a person's glory to overlook an offense. So what is the substance of your glory? When we forgive others, the watching world is drawn to Christ. The Christ who does not keep receipts. You know that, don't you? Jesus doesn't keep receipts. He purchased you. You know the instructions on all those return policies. 45 days in original packing. Your Heavenly Father doesn't keep the receipts. He bought you with the blood of His Son. He brought you into His home. And he threw away the receipt because he has no intention of returning any of us. Now then, what are the receipts doing in your pocket? There's two dumpsters out there in the back. Get rid of your receipts. Forgiven people forgive. When someone wrongs us, a moral debt occurs, pain happens, and it has to be accounted for. And we can either make the offender pay for the pain, or we can absorb the pain in forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Who do you need to forgive today? Who? Who is that person? Not just in your heart, but in your words, in their presence. Can you speak with that person? If that person is unwilling, can you speak with a brother or sister in Christ and just process that pain? Perhaps one of our elders and perhaps a skilled counselor. Who do you need to forgive today? That, the weight, you, you just can't carry that weight. It's not sustainable. Remove it. 
remove it. There's a, there's a Gaelic proverb that says, nothing is easy for the unwilling. Without willingness, the journey is impossible. Before compassion comes the willingness to feel compassion. Before transformation, there must be the belief that transformation is possible and the willingness to be transformed. Before forgiveness, there must be the willingness to consider forgiving. So here is my closing prayer for us. Bow your heads, if you would, please. It's, it's titled, The Prayer Before the Prayer. Father, I want to be willing to forgive, but I dare not ask for the will to forgive in case you give it to me. And I am not yet ready. I'm not yet ready for my heart to soften. I'm not yet ready for, to be vulnerable again. I'm not yet ready to see that there is humanity in my tormentor's eyes or that the one who hurt me may also have cried. I'm not yet ready for the journey. I'm not yet interested in the path. I am at the prayer before the prayer of forgiveness. Oh God, grant me the will to want to forgive. Grant it to me, not yet, but soon. Can, can I even form the words? Dare I even look? Do I even dare to see the hurt I have caused? I, I can glimpse all the shattered pieces of that fragile thing, that soul trying to rise on the broken wings of hope, but only out of the corner of my eye, I'm afraid of it. And if I am afraid to see, how can I not be afraid to say, forgive me? For I am a sinner too. Is there a place where we can meet? You and me. Offender and offended. The place in the middle. Where we straddle the lines where you are right and I am right. And both of us are wrong and wrong. Can we meet there? At the place where life begins. The path that ends when we forgive the path of death being birthed into life everlasting. Oh God, is not that place the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, who cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh Jesus, take me there. And God's people said, amen.